Hello, Ridgetop Church. This is the final sermon in a sermon series that we've been calling Common Creed, which has been based on uh, the Apostles' Creed. And it's the oldest creed of the ancient church and the shortest one as well. And, And it communicates the basic beliefs of the Christian faith. And it mostly tells us about who God is and what he's done. It starts with the Father Almighty, uh, the one who's created heaven and earth, and then it moves to God the Son, uh, who's conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, uh, coming again to judge the living and the dead. And then uh, I believe in the Spirit, and the Spirit uh, is birthing the church. It is unifying the church in a, a spiritual uh, community, the communion of saints. And then toward the end, we eventually declare some things that are true about us, that uh, we believe in the forgiveness of sins, uh, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And each of these statements uh, logically flows from one to another. Um, the forgiveness of sins, uh, we, we understood earlier from uh, the section on God the Son that his death on the cross was paying a debt that we owed because we had sinned against a holy God, and that Christ's death pays the debt such that we can be forgiven of our debt, and that if our sins are forgiven, then the consequence of sin, which is death, is also erased, which is why it makes sense for us to then say, we believe in the resurrection of the body. Uh, the creed is, is speaking of not only Jesus' resurrection, but our resurrection uh, for those who believed in the content of the creed. And then uh, we said earlier that resurrection technically is rising from the dead, never to die again. And so it makes sense that we would then declare that we believe in the life everlasting, that once we are raised to life, we will never die again. And so uh, this is where we want to camp out for the next few minutes is uh, what it, what does it mean to believe in the life everlasting? Um, there's a lot of uninformed ideas around uh, life after death. Um, and among Christians, um, some describe life after death as just sort of lounging around, doing nothing, or sitting on clouds and playing harps or being a disembodied spirit floating around, you know, without our bodies or uh, indulging in all our bad habits without consequences. People say, you know, I'm going to eat all the chocolate I want without getting fat or having infinite time to participate in our favorite hobbies like golf or, or travel. Um, All these are misinformed ideas around life ever after. And, Um, we want to look at a portion of scripture that will help us actually understand better what what do we expect um, in life everlasting. And the the place that is probably the most thorough, comprehensive description of this is from Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. And so we want to look at uh, chapter 21 this morning. And Revelation is apocalyptic literature. um, And I don't want to go too far down the road of explaining what that is, but one of the things you need to know about it is that it is highly symbolic. Um, There is 
uh, one symbol piled up on to another symbol throughout the book. And these symbols uh, carry great emotion with them and also multifaceted meaning. Uh, and this is part of the reason why uh, the scripture would even use symbols to communicate uh, the truth about God, is, is that they can contain more than a mere bullet point with some propositional truth. They can contain lots of facets of meaning and a great deal of emotion. Um, so we want to look at the symbols and their meaning in this chapter, and then we want to do some thinking about what the implications are of um, the, our reflection. And so the first couple of verses here in Revelation 21 introduce the overarching symbols that will be used throughout the chapter. And so it starts off, Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So we see there's a new heaven and new earth, and we see that there is no sea um, let's talk about each of these. So heaven and earth uh, is uh, a phrase that just means the created world. We, we might say the earth and the sky. Um, and what we see here is that it is new, meaning that there's a continuity uh, from the old heaven and earth to the new heaven and earth, that the old creation is now being made new. It's a little bit like an extreme home makeover. I don't know if you Grew up uh, watching that show, but they would always start with a really rundown house, and and then they would take that house and they would make it over, right? And there was some similarities between the old house and the new house, uh, and so you could tell that it was the same house, but it was made entirely new. So one one of the things that it's telling us is that the material world has value that that God created that world, and it's good. It's very good. Uh, but then it was comprehensively devastated by sin. And then now it's going to be comprehensively made new. And so one of the ways to think about it, one writer says, you think of it as the, the world was made by God in the creation. Then it was unmade by sin. And now it's being remade again in uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Now we notice also that there's no sea. Um, this is symbolic. Again, all of this stuff is highly symbolic. And so water, or especially open water, like the ocean or a large sea, uh, was a symbol of chaos and evil. People had a lot of superstition in the ancient world around open water and what might happen if you go out on the open water. And so Saying there's no sea doesn't mean we're not going to have a sea in the new heavens and new earth, but it means that there's no more chaos. The effects of sin, the chaos of sin has been completely remedied. And the result is more glorious than what was originally created. And this is one of the beautiful things about what we find out about life everlasting, that uh, it's, again, similar to these older homes that are being remade here in our neighborhood around the church. Uh, they were made in around 1940. Uh, actually, the, the construction was known as being fairly cheap, at least by those standards in the, in the 1940s. 
and people could get really cheap homes in this neighborhood. And, and so over time, those homes were unmade uh, through wear and tear and rot and infestation and sun and rain and all the things that a, a house goes through. And, and those houses were unmade to some degree. But now... <laughs> Uh, construction companies are coming in and remaking them, and they're remaking them in the most glorious of ways. I mean, you can look right across the street at a couple of them. They're absolutely beautiful, and they're even better than they were when they were originally made. This is the picture that we're seeing here in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there's, there's more to the renewal of what's happening here than the renewal of creation. There's also the renewal of civilization. Uh, the second, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the first part of Revelation 21.2 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, the, the city is symbolic of human civilization. Uh, humanity starts in a garden in Genesis 1 and 2, but we're told that uh, you know they're given a mandate to have lots of babies and, and for those babies to join together when they grow up and cultivate the earth. And in essence, uh, in essence, they're being told to create a people who will create a God-glorifying culture. And so the city is emblematic of the pinnacle of culture-making. Just think about it. Even in our city here in Austin, uh, there's architecture, there's visual arts, there's music, there's food, there's recreation, there's collaboration, there's creativity, there's innovation, there's industry, there's education. You don't find those things, at least not in uh, the, the, the kind of uh, massive expressions uh, in rural towns. You find it in the city. And we're seeing here these things aren't being wiped away. Uh, they're actually being made new. And so this communicates that not only is there value in the creation, but that God values the good endeavors of human beings. The things that humans put their minds and their hands to, these things matter. And they matter to God and they give him glory and they provide benefit to people. Now, speaking of people, the city is also a place where a lot of people uh, live. Um, the, the new city is a place where uh, there's not only a lot of people, but these people have been renewed or restored in their relationships with each other. There's no more racism or classism or sexism or any other injustice or division <laughs> All the people in this new creation, living in this new city, are dwelling in right relationship with each other. This is what every human being on the planet desires. A, a proper care for the environment, society that functions in a way that uh, contributes to human and environmental thriving. Right relationships between people at all levels, in marriages and families and workplaces and neighborhoods and towns and cities and nations. 
We all desire this. I mean, this is partly why a lot of us really love cheesy Christmas movies, right? There's always something being redeemed. It's, you know, a, a town, a company, a bed and breakfast in Vermont. And then there's also the bringing together of relationships, usually relationships that are estranged at the beginning of the movie. And then uh, by the end of the movie, they have been restored. Now, we long for that. But how on earth can we get it? Well, we get it through the most important renewal that we read about in the book of Revelation, and that is the renewal of the relationship between human beings and God. This is the most important work of restoration in the new heaven and the new earth and the new city. Now, notice that the, the, the city is the city of Jerusalem. Now, the, the city of Jerusalem in the Old Testament was the place where God dwelled with his Old Testament people. And this is communicating that, uh, the, that it's not just that the creation is being made new and the city is being made new and the relationships are being made new, but this is all, uh, it's all happening as a result of the renewal of humanity's relationship with God. And he even piles up another symbol to communicate this uh, in the second part of uh, 21, verse 2, he says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see him mushing together two symbols, which is, is oftentimes what's happening in the book of Revelation. So not only do you have a city uh, of Jerusalem coming down, but you have a bride uniting with her husband. And so this is, is communicating the nature of the relationship between God and human beings. Now, I've done a lot of weddings, and uh, my favorite one ha having done is well, my uh, son, Corey, and his wife, Rebecca. And our whole family was involved, and, and there was such a, a beauty in that wedding, a love in that wedding, an exclusive inclusivity in that wedding, uh, in terms of the unique relationship between Corey and Rebecca, a permanence uh, in that wedding as they covenant with each other to be married till death do us part, a joy that they shared with each other, but that the whole room was sharing in, the, a great deal of hope for their future as we thought about them as husband and, and wife, and, and a great deal of intimacy uh, that they were sharing and would share as a husband and wife. And so John here is depicting uh, the relationship between God and human beings with a marriage. Notice that in those cheesy Christmas movies, oftentimes at the center, 99% of the time at the center of that movie is a romance. And when the leading man and the leading lady are brought together at the end of the movie, everything else comes together as well and revolves around the romance. That is true here in what Scripture uh, describes as life everlasting, that at the center of the res restoration of all things is a romance, the love between God, the groom, and his people, the bride. Now, after all these descriptors of, of, of these different symbols, then we hear a loud voice. And uh, this, is, this is something very common in apocalyptic literature where you have the symbols and you have a loud voice 
that sort of affirms the things that you've just seen in the symbols. And so John describes it this way, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give them the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my people. Now the voice has some more things to say, but let's let's stop right there. So so it's describing the voice as being very loud, meaning it is the voice that is ruling over every other voice. There are no other competing voices. Not only that, the voice is coming from the throne. So the voice is coming from God. And what is the voice saying? Uh, The voice is saying that all of this renewal that we mentioned earlier, the creation, the civilization, relationships between people, it all stems from God now dwelling with his people. Uh, God is coming near again. And you say, well, where did God go? You know, why did he leave? Well, Sin separated human beings from a holy God. God did dwell intimately with his people there in the Garden of Eden. But when uh, humanity sinned against God, it separated them from God. So humanity did the separating. And now God has arranged a way for him to dwell near yet again with human beings. And his dwelling near is restoring, it's renewing all things. He, he, he says, he declares, I am making all things new. And so the break in the relationship with God that caused the unraveling of creation, the unraveling of civilization and human relationships, all the tears and the death and the mourning and the crying and the pain, which came from sin, right? All of that is being made new. Uh, Christian counselor and author Dan Allender says this, to live is to hurt. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. We live in the unmade world. And there's so much about it that is wrong. It is, it is painful. And, and this is describing a life to come where all of that unmade world is going to be re. Now we see that the renewal is personal and cosmic. It's very personal. The the description of tears being wiped away from your eyes. I don't know how much more intimate of a picture of God making things new that could be described there. Just tenderly, intimately, actually taking the tears and wiping them from your eyes and, and, and the declaration that there will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning. That has been replaced with joy and gladness. It's also very cosmic, right? Death itself, public enemy number one, is being gobbled up in this redemption that is coming as God comes near uh, to the to the, the new creation, to the new 
city. And God lets us know that he is the beginning and the end, that he is the alpha, the first letter of the, of the Greek alphabet, and the omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He, he, we would say he's from A to Z, right? He's from the beginning to the end. He is in charge. He is sovereign. He is making all things new. We see the same uh, span in the creed, right? The creed opens up with maker of heaven and earth, right? A creator of heaven and earth, uh, the beginning, but also at the end, life everlasting, that the creed encompasses uh, the entire uh, story. And nothing is left untouched by the redemptive work of God, right? He's saying, I have made all things new. Now, this cosmic and personal renewal is not, not being experienced by everyone. Some are experiencing the exact opposite. So the loud voice continues in verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now again, the voice is loud. It is a ruling voice. There are no competing voices. This voice is coming from the throne. It's coming from God. And what is the voice saying? The voice is saying there's a list of people who are not going to be in the new heavens and new earth. They're not going to be in the renewed city. They're not going to be experiencing the restored relationships. They're going to be experiencing the exact opposite. They're going to be experiencing the lake of fire. Now again, highly symbolic, right? So earlier we said open water is chaos, it's evil. Well, a second symbol that communicates chaos, evil, destruction is fire. And so he piles up these two images of water and fire into this concept of the lake of fire. And and when he he, he creates this image of, of chaos, of watery chaos, of fiery chaos, he, he is communicating that sin and the results of sin is chaos. It's disorder. It, it, it is uh, also a continuity from the chaos and, in di- and disorder that this list of folks uh, lived in in this life and how that is continuing into the life to come. And they're continuing to experience the, the disorder, the chaos, the evil of being separate from God, of not dwelling in a relationship uh, with God. For human beings were never meant to be liars or cowards or murderers or sexually immoral or idol worshipers or manipulators of spiritual power apart from God, which is what a sorcerer is. And so these are just, it's not an exhaustive list. It's just examples of, of people who have lived far from God, and, and result, the result was their lives were in absolute chaos and evil, and that is continuing into their life to come. And it's different kinds of sinful behavior. I mean, we tend to fixate on certain kinds of sinful behavior, especially if we don't really struggle with that. But this is a broad enough list to let us know that all sin is outside the good and life-giving order of God. And again, we're seeing a continuity. They're just, they're just rolling into the afterlife in the same evil, the same disorder, except now they're experiencing it on an eternal uh, kind of, le- of level. 
And, you know, we read that and I, I think, we, you know, we see this stark contrast, right, of the new heaven, new earth, but then we see this uh, life apart from God in the afterlife and we have to ask the question, how do I make sure I'm in group one and not group two? And that's a, that's a great question. And immediately, uh, John, the writer, gives a hint of, of how you can be in group number one, right? Verse nine, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So he goes back to the marriage picture, speaks of the bride and the groom, except here he lets us know that the groom is, quote, the lamb. And so how you get into the new heaven, new earth has something to do with the lamb. But stay tuned. We'll, we'll come back to the lamb here in a minute. Okay, in verse 10, the scene shifts and he's carried away in verse 10 uh, in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at, gates, at the gates, uh, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There's the Lamb again. Now, the city has a wall. Now, Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem had a wall. Um, all ancient cities that, that hung around for any amount of time had a wall because this is, was, was their security. And so this uh, ancient city, this uh, new Jerusalem coming down, has a wall, and it has 12 gates. Each of those gates has a name over the top. That name is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Partly what this is, is saying to us is that uh, one part of the, the, the humanity that's going to come into this city is the Old Testament people of God, the Jews, the 12 tribes of Israel. But not only does this uh, city have uh, 12 gates in the walls, it has 12 foundations underneath uh, the, the, that, that are underneath the wall. And these foundations have the name of the apostles, right? And so this is letting us know that those that are in the city are also from the New Testament people of God. And so there's this, again, a continuity of Old Testament people of faith and New Testament people of faith that are going to enter into this new Jerusalem in the life everlasting. Now, again, how do I get in on this? Right? Uh, I'm telling you, it's something to do with the Lamb, and we'll get there. So continued description here, verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls, and the city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. That's, that's going to be important here in a minute. His, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits of human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. 
The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, more descriptions of the city. Um, Sometimes Christians are like, oh, it's just such a beautiful city, and he just didn't know what words to use because it's so beautiful, so he just makes up, you know, sort of these parallels between beautiful gold and beautiful. It's more than that, right? It's again, it's highly symbolic. So one thing is, it's a really big cube. The city is a cube. He lets us know it's 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia, right? It's a big, massive cube. Now, how, how long is, how far is a 12,000 stadia? Well, 12,000 stadia is about 1,400 miles. That's like from Austin to LA. It would take 24 hours to drive across this city, right? If, if, if this was uh, a, a, a concrete descriptor here. But, but remember, it's, it's symbolic. So partly what it's saying is it's really big. <laughs> it's really big. There's lots of room for lots of people to dwell with God in this city. But it's also symbolic of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. You may remember from last week, we talked a little bit about the, the setup of the temple and you know, the normal people kind of come in the front of the temple and then the priest can go into the next layer of the temple and, and offer sacrifices on the altar. And then the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies one time a year and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the whole uh, the whole nation. And that Holy of Holies is a cube. It's a cube, both in the tabernacle and also in the temple. And it represented the most, you know, highly concentrated expression of the manifest presence of God on planet earth. So what it's saying is that everyone dwelling in the city is dwelling in the presence of God. They are in the Holy of Holies. Last week we said uh, we, that we believe in the priesthood of the believer, that every believer in Christ has been made a priest. They've been, they've been given access, direct access with God through their faith in, uh, in Christ Jesus. And so this is what's being depicted here is that everyone dwelling in the city is dwelling in the presence of God. There are no obstacles. There's nothing between them and the manifest presence of God. It's also telling us that there is nothing that's as valuable or beautiful than being in the presence of God. All these stones, uh, all these precious metals that are being uh, described are really valuable. And it's letting us know that that dwelling in the presence of God is what is is the most valuable thing we could ever desire. And that it's the most beautiful thing. It's displaying colorful light through all these colored uh, stones. And and think about first century. You don't have electric light. You don't have electricity um, that that, that you can use in in your home to light up your Christmas light display. But this is something similar to what's happening here. It's like a Christmas light display, like the ultimate Christmas light display. And and we love that. I mean, just think about it. We, we, We like drive distances and 
you know, wait in traffic to drive through little displays of, of Christmas lights. Why do we do this? Because we're, we're wired for this. We're wired for this wonder and this, and this beauty. We're, want, we're, we're wired to, to go look at stuff and go, oh, it's amazing, right? And he's saying the most amazing, the, the most beautiful, the most worthy thing you could ever uh, experience is the, the presence of God, dwelling with God. It is, it is full of worth and beauty. And so finally, in verse 22, we get to uh, the, the, the part where people are actually coming into the city. And so let's take a look at who's, who's in the city and how it is they got in here. So verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So first thing is there's no temple in the city that's that is the New Jerusalem. It's shocking. It's really shocking because the temple was the crown jewel for the Old Testament Jerusalem. But there's no need for a brick and mortar temple or priesthood or sacrifices in the New Jerusalem. Why? Because God the Father and God the Son are dwelling. They are the temple for the people. That The very presence of God is dwelling with God's people. And this presence is depicted as an all-encompassing light. This is something about light that's really amazing. It, right? If we were in this room and it was in complete darkness and we just lit a candle, the, the light from that candle would dispel all the darkness in this room. And so this is what's being described here, that, that, that the light of God, the presence of God is all-encompassing. It is dispelling all darkness. It is making all things new. And, and look who is coming in to experience the presence of God, the nations. The nations. It's, it's, it's not just uh, the Jews. It's not just... Americans, it's not just Westerners that are they, they tend to identify as Christians. It's every ethnicity on the planet. They are coming in to the city through those beautiful gates. And, and they're all offering up something unique and God-glorifying uh, as a people, as an ethnicity, something that they have uh, made something they have done, something they have created, something they have, have invented. It's, it, it's something that, that is unique to their people group that is being offered up as uh, a God-glorifying offering to God. And so John is watching this, and he's, he's watching it. He's like, wow, look at Somalia, what they've brought. Look at South Korea. Look at Mexico. Look at South Africa. Look, look, look. Wow. This is amazing to see the nations coming into the city and offering up uh, a God-glorifying offering to God. And so is, is this saying that every human being from every nation is coming into the city? No. Um, 
What's, what we're told here is that only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You, you come into the city only one way, and that is through faith in the Lamb. Now, who is the Lamb? Well, the Lamb is Jesus. We, we read uh, in John where, where John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, that this lamb who, uh, for Old Testament believers, the lamb was a sacrifice, something offered for sin. All those sacrifices pointed forward to the true and better lamb who was offered up on the cross for our sins. And so it is through faith in what the lamb has done for us on the cross that we are placed in the lamb's book of life. And the proof of that redemption, yes, is a turning away from sin and a turning toward God in faith. And so those who have have done that in this life are now experiencing a continuity into the next life of being accepted into the new city uh, by faith, uh, by grace through faith in the Lamb. They're written in the book. Now, what does that mean? Again, it's, it's highly symbolic. Um, the book communicates a permanence. That, that once your, your name is in the book, there's no blotting it out. There's no erasing it from the book. If you're a genuine Christian now, you will dwell with God in the life everlasting. And so all of this, both the, the personal salvation of individuals that are coming to the city, but also the complete restoration of the creation, of civilization, of relationships between people. All of this is being made possible by the Lamb, by what Christ has done on our behalf on the cross to forgive us of our sins, reconcile us with God, and make all things new. So there's a lot of ways I think to respond to this, but but one is trust in the Lamb. Trust in the Lamb. Uh, trust that that Christ, your sacrificial Lamb, has died on the cross in your place for your sins, and is offering this gracious gift of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And that that access to God through Christ starts now, and it goes into and throughout eternity. Not doing that results in a continuation of chaos and evil and unrepentance that will carry itself into the life to come, into uh, greater chaos, greater evil, greater separation from the dwelling, uh, dwelling place of God. So if you have not yet done that, whether you're here uh, at Ridgetop or you're listening to this online, to turn to him in faith, today, to trust in the Lamb. Now, number two, uh, don't lose heart. <laughs> if, you've, if you have trusted in the Lamb and you're experiencing pain and disappointment in this world, which of course you are, don't lose heart. There's an expiration date on this pain. And what we can do is we can reach forward to the hope that we see in this passage in the, in the future, and we can borrow some of it, and we can pull it into uh, our lives today. And so we can be going through things today in this old earth, 
this old heaven, um, and we can draw forth hope from the, the new earth and the new heaven. And so this helps us not to grow cynical about this life uh, or to, to despair about this life. I mean, Christians will, will sometimes say, oh, nothing matters. Who cares? It's all going to burn. No, it's actually the opposite. Everything matters. Creation matters. Civilization matters. Relationships matter. And, and God has not given up on these things. And so we shouldn't either. We should, we should be partnering with the one who is in Christ making all things new. He's doing it now. He's going to do that uh, forevermore. So don't give up heart. Number three, dwell with God now. If dwelling with God is the thing that is the, 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 the highest worth and the most beauty, why not do it now? Right? Let, let's read his words to us in the Bible. Let's pray to him. Uh, let's, let's offer praise and thanksgiving. Let's ask him to work in this world. Let, let's dwell with God now, but not only individually, also communally, because God dwells with his people in community, in the local church. And I know you're thinking, how does, how does Robert always come up with an application in a sermon that is join a local church? Well, it, because this is where it's at. This, this is where God dwells. He dwells with his people. Is it, you know, as amazing as, it gonna, as it's going to be in life everlasting? No, but, but it is a glimpse. It is a glimmer of, of what it's like to dwell in the very presence of of God. And, and so let's seek to join our lives with each other in our local church here at Ridgetop and experience the, the presence of God through the gospel. And then finally, let's tell people about the Lamb. And partly while we're planting this church is to get the message out to the neighborhood, to the college campuses, and beyond to the nations that people can be reconciled with God. They don't have to be separated from God. They can dwell with God, but only through faith in Christ and what he has done for them on the cross. And so let's, let's proclaim that to the people around us so that they can enter into the city with us and that their names will be in the book of life, the book of the Lamb.